0: All right, we're gonna be in Acts 2, verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. I should, man, am I doing okay with those? I should have practiced this out loud. I'm just winging it. blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved.
1: Tag, I know, I know. Okay, let's keep going. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is Peter explaining what's happening right now. Jesus, he has poured out this that you yourselves are hearing, are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Man. You talk about a hammer stroke. Verse 37, "'Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart "'and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "'Brothers, what shall we do?' "'And Peter said to them, "'Repent.'" Thousand souls. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Y'all go ahead and take a seat. Let me just say a quick prayer, just because that's usually done after we read the word and be good to do that again. Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for preacher after preacher getting up here, just a congregation full of folks in various ways, singing to you, giving testimony. Just speaking about how awesome you are and what we see here in your early church and what we're seeing even today, Lord, uh, preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we hear it again in powerful tones, Lord, through Peter. Lord Jesus Christ, be exalted, be lifted high as surely as you are, as often said, seated on your throne now. Be exalted as surely as you were lifted up on the cross and raised from the dead and kept going all the way to the control center of all things. Would you be glorified? Would you even now send us your Holy Spirit? Would you fill us? Would you touch my mouth? Would you revive your people? Would you save with a mighty hand? Would you fill us? Would you cleanse us? Would you gift us? We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, woo! So. That's a big chunk of text. It might be a record for us. I'm not sure. 41 verses. And next week, we'll look at the very tail end of chapter 2, the first window into what the early church was doing. But this is Peter. This is Peter's Pentecost sermon. He was one of the 12 apostles, and he gets up here. And whereas before, he was filled with the Spirit when he was a follower of Christ, um, but still very much relying on his own strength, man, he... He did a lot of stuff, but right before the cross, he ended up, he was relying on his own own strength, and with the best of intentions, he ended up denying Jesus, denying his Lord three times. And then we see Peter having gotten to the end of himself, and Peter here waiting on God, and Peter here filled with the Holy Spirit, and you see the amazing and mighty difference where this guy just gets up in the middle of literally thousands and thousands of people in the very crowded place at the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost, in a swollen city in the the king's city, Jerusalem. And he just belts out this word of God and speaks to these men who have just crucified Christ in power. And so we, as Austin said, we see the continuing power of Jesus Christ through his very person, by his Holy Spirit, speaking and acting. And this is really a focus on on Peter's sermon and and, um, what he says and how he says it and all sorts of lessons there for us. So I just want to, before jumping into to the, the meat of it, want to kind of start with something at the end of the Bible, Revelation 5, which I've mentioned many times as I've preached. It's one of my favorite. It's one of my top five probably chapters in the Bible, which is saying a lot. But Revelation 5, really, why well, start the sermon here, the sermon about Peter's proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Revelation 4 and 5 in the last book of the Bible are really two chapters that sort of give you a summary of the entire swath, the entire march of salvation history from, old, from Genesis all the way to Revelation in two chapters. And in Revelation 4, it just gives us this, this covenantal, awesome creator God who is worshiped by his creation, but who honestly is terrifying. He made us for himself, but through our rebellion and sin, we've estranged ourselves from him. But because of his good word and work and covenant, he's, he's made a people for himself. But he's, he's unseen. He's surrounded by lightning and thunder, and yet by a rainbow that's his promise about being faithful and making a people for himself. And he's on, but he's, he's terrifying. And there's a lot of images in, in Revelation 4 of Mount Sinai, when God brings, and there's going to be mention after mention today of Mount Sinai, but when God makes a people for himself, he delivers them out of Egypt, out of slavery with a mighty hand, and he brings them to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula. And if you approach God on your own terms, you die at that mountain. He's there to bless his people, but because of sin, we can't approach God any way we want to. It's like, you can't approach the sun any way you want to. You will die. Jesus, God made the sun with just a word. The sun's got nothing on God. I mean, I remember looking at, my kids are studying astronomy and I looked just this week at a picture of a solar flare coming off the sun and then they put a picture of what the earth, the size of the earth next to the solar flare. You can hardly see the earth. The solar flare is like 30 times bigger than our entire planet. That's just a flare on one middle-sized star Um, You cannot approach this God however you want to. And so he gives, according to his word, exactly how we have to approach God according to his word. And that's what you see in Revelation 4. Um, But then in Revelation 5, which really accents and underscores the idea that you can only approach God according to his word, John sees, he turns his eyes. Well, first of all, he starts weeping because he sees that God, this almighty creator, that is circled by his adoring creation, but is yet really unapproachable, except by his word. He has this plan for all, for everything, and it's symbolized, there's a lot of symbolism in Revelation. You, if you've even taken a stab at it at all, you know this. There's a ton of symbolism in the book. And, and, and God is holding a scroll, um, and it's a scroll that's uh, sealed with seven seals, and it's written on both sides. So it's, in other words, it's, it's A to Z, top to bottom, soup to nuts, the entire down to the smallest letter plan for the unfolding of all things. God's perfect plan for his creation. But John, he sees it and he starts to weep because it said that nobody's worthy to execute the plan because of our rebellion. Because he had for us to rule over creation and to fill his creation with his goodness, but we, we ran from him. We rebelled. We can't come into his presence on our own. And so... There's no one that was found worthy in heaven or, or on the earth or under the earth. And so John, what does John do at the beginning of Revelation 5? He just starts to weep because no one's found that's worthy. And then there's an elder and he puts his hand on John and he says, stop weeping, don't weep because there is one who has been found worthy and he's the lamb that was slain. He's a lion, but he looks like a lamb who was slain, but isn't slain anymore. And this lamb approaches the unapproachable, the ancient of days, God Almighty at the center of his throne, and he grabs the book and he opens it. And all of creation falls down in concentric circles from the throne and just worships this lamb who shares the throne with God. He is God Almighty. He is worthy. He became man. He is the son of man. He, was, he became a, a lamb who was slain it was determined and planned by the perfect plan of God to save us, to set creation right, to let all of his perfect plans to for creation to go forward. And that is the picture that John gives of this lamb. And that's really, why do I belabor this? What does it have to do with this text? That's really what Peter is saying here. What, there are so many components of his sermon. We could spend four or five weeks easily in it. But what is he trying to say? In essence, he's saying that Everything culminates, comes into this prism. All that God has been doing up to the person of Jesus Christ, this lion and this lamb who was slain, comes into this prism of Christ and is, and is shot forth in crystal uh, clarity and with rainbow colors out of Christ. It all, everything converges on Christ. He is the hinge of history. He is the reason that it all happened and out of him go all things with coherence, and making sense, because he has all power, and he makes God approachable and knowable once again for us. And so Peter isn't just saying, hey, in Christ we have salvation. He is saying that, we're going to talk about that, but he's also saying something so much even greater than that. He's saying, in Christ, we have been brought near to God, and in Christ, all that God has been doing has coherence and makes sense and hangs together. He is the hinge of all creation. So The first thing, the first point, if we have them on the screen, um, and if we don't, still the first point, is Jesus, the fulfillment of the ages. And again, Peter's Pentecost sermon, the point of it's really that Jesus is God's plan for the fulfillment of all things. So the first point is just Jesus, the fulfillment of the ages. If you look at, um, at, at the beginning of Peter's sermon, when he gets up in verse 17, he says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares. He's talking about the last days, um, he begins his sermon by laying out two truths, okay? What has just happened? They've been waiting on God, and the Spirit has fallen on them, and they've gone out preaching what God has done in Christ, the mighty works of God, in all these languages, okay? And Peter gets up, and he starts to explain it. And he says, this is what was prophesied before in the prophet Joel, in Joel chapter two. And Joel says, in the last days, these things will happen. And Peter appropriates that, and he says, these are the last days, okay? These are the last days. So what's the point here? Um, The author of Hebrews confirms this and says the same thing. He says, long ago, God spoke through the prophets in various ways and sundry ways and forms. But now, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his very son, the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And so he's saying that the last days aren't sometime in the future. They're a quality in a period of time that started when God came and lived among us. And they will go on as he is reigning as the vindicated king in heaven on his throne and reigning through his body. They will go on until he returns. These are the last type of days. Jack Deere, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. He kind of explains this bit where Peter gets up and says, in the last days, and by the way, that's now this scripture in Joel is fulfilled now. We don't have to say when are the last days. The last days are here. They started 2,000 years ago and they continue until Christ returns. Jack Deere says, there's no what's last, what's after, what's more last than last. There's no laster days, you know? In other words, um, this, this is it. And so these are the days in which these things are gonna happen, okay? It's not looking for some future thing, it's now. And what are they gonna look like, sort of part two, of the first part of Peter's sermon. These are the last days and here's what they're gonna look like. They're gonna look in verse 17 and 18 like the democratization, democ- democratization I should say, I think that's the right way to say it, of the Holy Spirit's impartation. In the past, in various ways, God spoke through various people as prophets. But the, the last, these last days where Christ is reigning and he's done his work and he's bringing people to himself are days day when not he gives his spirit to a select few but where he pours his spirit out. He doesn't, the word pours is used here. It's not, he, he gives, he puts a dollop here, he puts a dollop there, there's a trickle. It's that he pours with a generosity and a lavishness his own person, his own breath, his own life out because Christ has made a way for anyone to come to God now. He pours his, it's a good, gonna be a time of all types, young, old, woman, man, different social stations who call in the name of the Lord in Jesus Christ getting um, poured out the Holy Spirit onto them. Secondly, like I said, it's an outpouring, not a trickle. You see that in verse 17. But then third and fourth, um, what are these last days going to look like? Verse 20, we can skip over. Verse 20 is all sorts of terrifying imagery about judgment. They're going to look like judgment. And finally, they're going to look like salvation. Okay? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why does, why does Peter, I mean, Peter, Why does Peter press those two things together? They're going to look like these last days are going to be full of judgment and salvation. First answer is, why does he press them together? Because Joel did. He's saying this scripture, this word of God that was preached centuries ago is now fulfilled right here, right now. We're seeing the start of the last days. But we also see, I think, that we sit back and ask why judgment and salvation Whenever God comes among his people, his very presence means either, it's either really good news or really bad news for you, depending on which side you're on. If you're opposed to him, God isn't good news. If you're opposed to God in Christ Jesus, if you aren't interested in him, that's rejection. If you reject him, that's also very bad news. If if it's true that God came, gave us his most precious thing, his own son, and died on a Roman cross for us, and we reject that, there's nothing for us but judgment. And yet, I think that it's pressed together with salvation, and the rest of what Paul talks about, Peter talks about, excuse me, that's probably not the last time I'll do that. Peter, Paul, man, it's tough, is salvation is because Jesus Christ on the cross, what happened when he was on the cross? All sorts of importance, the sky turns black, a sign of God's judgment, the sign of creation mourning. It's like the opposite of Genesis 1. Creation's being undone. Instead of light, there's darkness. There's an undoing and an unraveling of the yarn, of the ball of yarn, as it were, of creation itself. As the Son of God is being unraveled, who upholds all things by the word of his power, creation's going with him, right? Rocks are splitting open, All sorts of terrifying things are happening. People are mourning, they know this is terrible. What have we done, right? But he is taking the unraveling of creation that our sin has created into himself and onto himself. And his creation is trembling and shaking as a result, and he is crying out, but he is taking the judgment of God that is our that is that has come into creation because of our rejection of God into himself, that he might offer himself as our salvation. Right, he he took that judgment that is coming. He stepped in the gap between us and became a shield and took the blow of God that we deserve. And so, for a time in these last days, between two thousand years ago, the minute that he made a way, the minute that the curtain was torn, and when he comes again, it's really yes, it's a time of judgment and salvation, but it's really an open window for salvation, and that's what Peter proclaims, and that's the message of the gospel. That's the message that we get to proclaim. But first, it's that we deserve judgment. We get judgment. He took it in our place. Unless we hide in him, that's what we get. He is provided a way. We come to him by his word. His son is his word. And so that's what, in a nutshell, that's what Peter gets up and proclaims. But I think that's why Joel and then Peter following him squishes these two things together. Christ absorbed our judgment so that salvation can be offered to us. And what? Not, a, you have to do this, 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 and this, this. these five pillars, these a million things. You have to punctiliously obey the law and then you'll be saved. No, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, he's done it all. He's made a way. His flesh was torn. The way into the Holy of Holies where God resides has now been torn open. And Peter is telling us, come on to Jesus. God orchestrated all this purposefully through your evil and sin for you to come back to God. Come home. Okay? So so this is this is Jesus the fulfillment of the ages. And this is what Peter's proclaiming here. Um, briefly and then I'm gonna boost quickly to point two, but just the last thing on this point, what is happening? There's so much to be said and I'm not gonna say it all, but what is happening here, I've mentioned this before as I preached in this in this text A lot, but one of the things that's happening is this is a reversal. If you know your Old Testament at all, and if you don't, that's okay. This is a reversal of an incident called Babel. This is a reversal of Babel. Every scholar sees this, every commentator that commentates on Acts 2 and Peter's sermon and Pentecost says this and notes this. This is purposefully a lot of different things, but one of the things that's happening is at Babel, what happened? Man, in his own efforts, in his own strength, Think Peter denying Christ, trying to hang, trying to please God in his own strength. They're trying to get to God at Babel on their own steam, cleaning themselves up, getting rid of their sin, showing themselves worthy, However, whatever, hooking their identity into their work performance. You fill in the blank. Making sure that other people think I'm a good person. Whatever it is, right? Um, they are trying to get to God on their own steam. What do they do? They literally they make it easy for us to see what they're trying to do. They build a tower to try to literally like get up to the heavens on their own efforts. And God says, that is not, that is never the way to get to me. And so what does he do? He, he scatters them by, they are all speaking the same language. And he scatters them by having them all speak different languages. And they can't work together. You can't work, if you can't, if you speak a different language to someone, you can't, you can't really do much with them. So the whole work crew falls apart and they scatter over the face of the earth with all these different languages. And that's where the different languages come from, Okay. What is this? This is the opposite of that. This is a bunch of people from the Jewish dispersion coming together from the diaspora, which is the Jewish scattering in the centuries before Christ, coming together for this big feast. There are three feasts a year, and this is one of them. And they come together, all these Jews that speak all these languages um, primarily from the areas that they're in around the Mediterranean. And so they're coming together, as Austin read very well, all these languages, these Jews speaking all these languages from around the Mediterranean rim. And this group of 120 that have been waiting on God get filled with the Spirit and they go out and they start preaching the gospel, what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, what you could never do yourself, God has done for us in the person of his Son. They start speaking in a language, in all these different languages people can understand. Okay, and that's ultimately what Jesus, not ultimately, but one of the wonderful things, one of the wonderful expressions of what Christ came to do is he came to bring God to us as God in a way that we can understand in our heart language. And so it's the opposite of Babel. Instead of us getting up to God on our own steam, what is it? Literally, this is an indicator. The mighty works of God are that he came down. He came down because we can't get up to him. He came down to us, to our filth and to our loneliness and our despair. And we sang about earlier, our shame. And even the best of our works, which are like dirty rags to God tainted by our sin. He came down and lived a life in our place of obedience to the Father and died an ignominious death by the plan and foreknowledge of God in our place. And so this this is an act of bringing all disparate peoples together under the banner of that word, Jesus Christ. So it's the opposite of Babel. It's God underscoring the fact that we can never do enough to get to him. So he came down. If there was any other way to get to him, he wouldn't have done it, but he did. And so... This is Jesus, the fulfillment of the ages, according to Peter. Um, Let's move on to Jesus, point two, Jesus, the fulfillment of scripture. I'm gonna try to be real brief here, but it's really important, and it shoots through the whole sermon of Peter. Um, And again, who wrote the book of Acts? Good job, class. Luke, yeah, Luke did. So Luke wrote the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you have John. John but he also wrote Acts, and so it's, he really wrote them to be one work together. And how does Luke end his gospel, the gospel of Luke? He ends it with Jesus resurrected, walking with a couple of his followers who still have their heads down, thinking he's, they knew he's been crucified, and they've heard he's been risen, but they're just like perplexed, nonplussed, completely don't know what to do, and they're still a bit dejected. And he walks with them, kind of like, I imagine like Obi-Wan Kenobi, I mean, you know, like sort of hooded and who knows, but they couldn't recognize him in part because Jesus resurrected was a bit different. People didn't immediately recognize him oftentimes. They certainly didn't. And as he's revealing to them, he's sort of scolding them in a gentle but powerful God kind of way um, for not understanding that what he did by going to the cross was part of God's plan. And this is the way Luke 24 ends. Jesus says, um, And he said to them in Luke 24, verse 25, oh, foolish ones, he's talking to these two disciples, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses, check this out, and beginning with Moses, that means Genesis, because Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that means in the rest of the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them, In all the scriptures, the thing is concerning himself. In other words, he's saying, only I make sense of the scriptures. Not only that, but they're all for me. They're all preparing the Jews and all of mankind and all creation for my arrival. And for my making sense of the whole plan of God and bringing all things together. Okay, And that's what you see here that Luke does again in recording Peter's sermon. He shows us in verses 17 through 21 that Austin read, Joel 2. In these last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's a prophet. And then in verses 25 through 28, he quotes from Psalm 16. You will not let your holy one see corruption. David was the one that wrote that. And it seems when you read the Psalm, like David's talking about himself, but Peter's like, that wasn't about David. He died. We have his tomb still. His body decomposed. It's talking about Jesus. David partially fulfilled it. Jesus totally fulfills it. It's it's the way that the scriptures work. They're primarily about Jesus. He goes on. Verses 34 and 35, Psalm 110, sit here, the father says. David said, um, he said, the Lord said to my Lord, David's calling the Messiah his Lord, and yet the Messiah is gonna come from David. So what's going on? Well, that's because the Messiah is the one who made him. The Messiah is the son of God, but yet he's gonna come from David's seat because he's, he's man and God, right? So the father says to the son, sit here while I make of your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, Peter's saying, that's Jesus. That's him now reigning, and he has done everything necessary for his kingdom to go forth on all the earth to do what Adam was supposed to do and lost because of his sin. He is the second Adam. He is the better Adam. He has conquered. He is reigning. And now what you're seeing is his kingdom going forth in power right here, right now. So he quotes from these Psalms. He quotes from a minor prophet. And then he, he mentions um, in verse 30, 2 Samuel 7, David knew that God had sworn with an oath that he'd put David's descendant on the throne to rule forever. And Peter's saying, that's, that's this guy, that's Jesus of Nazareth. So, in sum, um, the prophets, Joel, the writings, the Psalms, the histories, Samuel, and the law, um, Sinai, which this also Pentecost points to, um, all of Scripture, in other words, it makes sense, holds together. And not only that, guys, is for the purpose of this one who came, Jesus. It's all for him. In other words, what is the Bible? It's God showing us this is what really matters in history. This is me working through a people to make a people for myself, to rule in creation, to restore all things through this Messiah. That's what the Bible is. And Peter's saying all of history hangs on this Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, who grew up in Nazareth, who was crucified. But he's not dead anymore. That's what Peter is saying. So it's a history course. It's, like, it's a history of the cosmos based on this one guy, this hinge of history, Jesus Christ. Um, and then again, not just specific. Peter doesn't just, just have specific um, scriptures that he's saying Jesus fulfilled, but like I mentioned, Babel, it's an event. It's, um, that, it's epochs, it's, it's, it's the last days that Jesus brings, brings forth. Um, and then as I'm gonna hopefully mention in the end, it's Mount Sinai. And I, and I mentioned earlier, actually, in a different context, um, Jesus fulfills all these eras, all these events, all these specific scriptures. He is the fulfillment of all things. He's the, he's the key to God's plan. So what I wanna say here, just as a point of application, before moving into point three, um, Peter would have us. What is Peter doing? He's doing what he wants us to do. As we share the gospel, as we think about history, as we gain hope for the trajectory of where things are heading, when we read the news, we can just think, my Lord, is there any rhyme or reason is there any point to it all? Is there any fixed point? Is there any plan? What is the way that Peter sees the world? How ought we to read the scriptures? How ought we to see the march of history in this way? There's a, there's a, te- there's a term that theologians have called redemptive historical. And it's, if you need help with that, really just go read what we give to our children, which is the Jesus storybook Bible. There's a version for adults. What's the version for adults called? The story of God's love for you, they take away the pictures in case your adult sensibilities are offended by cartoons. Um, I like the picture book personally, but um, the story of God's love for you or the Jesus Storybook Bible, it tells not just the story of David slaying Goliath. It does tell that story, but it tells that story. And then it doesn't say, hey, the point of that story is be a giant slayer. Take courage, trust in God. It doesn't say that. The point of the story of David is, remember what Peter's doing, it's it's preparing us for the coming of Messiah. It's a picture in history that God orchestrated to show us there's one to whisper Jesus's name. There's one who's coming, who's going to do this in a way that's going to save you and begin the process of the restoration of all things. In other words, God was sovereign over every single event in history to craft it through our sin and evil to get ready for his son, to paint pictures of Jesus. So the point of David and Goliath is not be a giant slayer. It's that David, in this ancient form of combat, as this unimpressive little guy, that this nine-foot giant warrior, all he's done all his life is eat Wheaties and train to battle and war. That's all he's done. Goliath of Gath, his whole you know, reason for existence is to be a bad A, and to go kill people. That's what, that's what they, the Philistines train these giants for, okay? And he goes up against this little shepherd guy that doesn't even have a, a javelin or a sword in his hand. And he just starts cursing at him. Are you kidding me? And what is the ancient form of battle? It wasn't two armies going against each other. It was to save the armies, we will put our best warriors up against each other. And whoever wins, that's the, whole, the whole army wins. It's a, take, it's a winner take all. The point of the story is that this little, seemingly unimpressive person who trusted in God, who was the anointed of God, went up representing all of God's people, carrying with him all of God's people, and he beat this giant. He hit him with a stone, knocked him down, and cut his head off. And he, what he did in his victory, all of God's people won. Though they were cowering in the corner, he won for them as he went up against this, this sort of embodiment of the world and of death. And, and, and what the Jesus Storybook Bible says and what Peter is saying is this is the way we ought to read the scriptures and this is the way we ought to see history, is that what we cannot do for ourselves, God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. And all of history hangs on him. And now he's reigning and he's given us his spirit and all we can do, my friends, is to proclaim this good news to you. So that's what, that's what Peter says, and uh, it's so encouraging and it's so helpful. You know, don't read Be a Giant Slayer anymore. Read, don't just read when you read about the exodus out of Egypt, which happened in space and time. It really happened uh, when God brings through the plagues and through opening the Red Sea and bringing his people into the Sinai Peninsula and, and eventually into Canaan, the promised land. Um, don't just read that as something that happened where God moved a slave people from slavery into freedom. Because what does the New Testament tell us? The New Testament tells us the point of all that actually was that there was going to be, God was going to do that again and he was going to deliver his people from an even greater slavery than Egypt, from having to be whipped and to build an infrastructure for a mighty empire. He was going to deliver us from the greatest taskmaster, the one that we brought on ourselves. Sin, rebellion from God, eternal death, hell, the bonds of Satan, he was going to go to battle, this seemingly unimpressive carpenter from Nazareth, this stonemason. And he was going to do what looked like losing on a cross. And he, on that cross, was going to take down death itself by dying. But he wasn't going to stay dead. This is is how Peter is, is, is reading the scriptures and proclaiming Christ to us. So, Jesus, the fulfillment of our salvation, um, what are we doing here? Okay, all right, I need to, I, this is a big point, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just pick a few things out of it here, um, and then we're going to move briefly to the last point and, and close out. Jesus, the fulfillment of our salvation, point three, um, what do I want to press into us here? Just maybe a couple things, maybe two things, okay? Okay. Peter's proclamation is so Trinitarian. He moves back and forth between the work of the Holy Spirit, which he starts with, right? This is, what you're seeing is the Holy Spirit poured out, right? Because of Jesus who has conquered death through dying. But then he also, he moves between the Holy Spirit and the Father and Jesus of Nazareth. And if you look at verse 33, he crystallizes that. Look at verse 33 with me. Or if you even even want to, look at verse 32. Peter says, this Jesus God raised up after he was crucified, right? So this Jesus, God, the Father, raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter's like, I was there. I saw it. I saw him crucified, and then I ate with him as he was resurrected. Look at this. Look at verse 33, how Trinitarian. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, that's Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, having received from the Father, there is again the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So in other words, what's my point? My point is Peter is saying this whole work of salvation all this mighty works of God that you've heard us proclaiming in all these languages that are bringing people together, there's one thing about it. Again, think about the context. It's the opposite of Babel. God did it all. The Father working in concert with the Son, working in concert with the Holy Spirit. He, through your choice and evil and sin and rebellion and mine, We put Christ on the cross. As soon as I say that, you're gonna go, well, hang on, I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. I didn't do that. But why did he go to the cross? For our sins. He went to the cross for my sin and he went to the cross for your sin. We are the reason that he chose to hang there. Do you see? And Peter is saying, Peter is saying, God effected 100% completely, not only with no help from us, but on the contrary, He went to the cross because of us. And in his perfect sovereign power and mercy, that is just, you ever thought about the fact that he is infinite in his attributes? He is just as merciful and loving and full of compassion as he is powerful. When you look up at the stars and you think about how massive the universe is and that he spoke that, think about the fact that his love for you and his deep compassion are equally as massive. I love the stars in part because they remind me of that. It's hard to measure sometimes the love of God. It's, it's, it's measureless, but you can, we know so much about the universe. His love and compassion and mercy are every bit as massive and deep and big. And we see that in the person of his son, Jesus. But the point here that Peter is hammering home is we didn't help at all. That's the first thing I want you to see. Under Jesus, the fulfillment of our salvation, we helped none, quite the contrary. He he used our sin and evil to save us. Our rebellion became the portal through his sacrifice of our salvation. If he hadn't hung on the cross, we would be lost and we put him there. What a genius God is. We don't often talk about God as a genius. He is, I mean, the genius of this plan where mankind thinks he is winning and then because he is, crucifying this thing that he hates, which is God in the flesh, and that's how opposed we are to God in our flesh, and yet he uses that to save us, and it becomes his most awesome display of power. And Peter is turning this on his head and saying, you are guilty of doing this, and yet through that guilt, I'm offering you a way of salvation. Come. Come for times of renewal. Come to Jesus. And to crystallize that point, all we have to think about is, what does the name of Jesus mean? Yeh-huvah. Yeh is the short form of Yahweh. The name of God, the covenant name of God, shuva, is saves in Hebrew. Jesus means literally God saves. You don't save. You can add nothing. I can add nothing. All we can do is deny Christ right there as he is laying his life down for us and completely Father, Son, and Spirit accomplishing the work of our salvation and making us completely able to go before God and to be his children in his presence. And the other thing that I want to say there, so this is our salvation. And, um, and again, it's crystallized with, in verse 23, this Jesus, Peter says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. It seemed like a total cosmic train wreck, like an accident, but actually God was orchestrating everything. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Um, this is the moral of the, uh, of the Joseph story at the end of Genesis, which I've just been through in my quiet time. I, I read through the Bible once a year, typically, I have for a long time, and would encourage you to join me, our whole church. We have the, it's on the back of every bulletin every week, so just jump in wherever it is and, and start reading if you don't have a plan. But at the end of Genesis, the, it, the, the first book of the Bible ends with this amazing 14-chapter story about a man, in short form, a man getting sold into slavery by his own brothers, and he ends up down in Egypt, way away from his home, hundreds of miles from home, and it seems, And he gets thrown in prison, accused wrongly, thrown in prison, it's all, you talk about the wheels coming off. You talk about, man, I've gotten a bad, a raw deal here. Like, you talk about, but it's an amazing, true story that God orchestrated in history, and at the end of it, Joseph, the man, the brother who was thrown in prison, and sold by his own brothers, God uses all that evil to put him in a place to save all of his brothers, his father, and all of Egypt uh, from, fam- from seven years of famine. And at the end of the story, Joseph wraps it up in a nice bow, kind of like the Aesop's fable. At the end, you have the moral. I used to love those as a kid because it just wraps, he just wraps, Aesop just wraps it up for you. He's like, the point of the story is, and Joseph says that, he's like, Genesis 50, 20. The brothers are saying, don't once Joseph is in power and he could end their lives because of what they've done to him, they're like, please don't kill us now that dad is dead. And Joseph said, hey, what you meant for evil, God meant for good and for the salvation of many souls. This is that on steroids, okay? That's what the gospel is. We tried to and effectively killed Jesus and God the Father orchestrated all that to save us. That's amazing. There's no other story like that. Um, but that's the true story that saves us. And um, the, other, the last thing I want to say before closing down with the last point is, that, is just that I really, and, and I have more on this, but it's okay. And maybe I'll decide to preach again on this next week, but um, we're, we're, there's no rush. We're just taking our time through this book. But it's not just what Peter says and how he proclaims the gospel. It's also how he how he preaches the gospel. And I was just struck in my time um, this week and looking at this, that he fearlessly says, you crucified Jesus. In other words, our sins sent him there. And he is, Jesus is Lord. And he's, gonna, he's using that to offer you a way of salvation and a way of peace with God. Um, but what he says kind of clearly is, repent therefore, turn, turn from your sins, receive forgiveness, Thirdly, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, and what I think we typically do is we cut out numbers one and three when we share the gospel. We, we cut out repent and we cut out receive the Holy Spirit. Basically what we say is, um, we say, I've got it here somewhere, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter, I don't need it. Um, we basically say, uh, trust in Jesus, he'll forgive all of your sins and give you a new life. But what Peter says is, Look at what you've done. Look at what we did to him. This is the evil that we have to confront in ourselves, the wrong that we've done. Turn from that. He's the king. You're not the king of your life. He's the king, and look what he did to save you. Turn to him. You will be completely cleaned and forgiven. But also, it's not just a minus, like I said last week. The gospel isn't just you'll be cleaned. The gospel is a plus, too. It's a, do we say this? Receive Gift of the Holy Spirit, be be cleansed and be given all of the full presence of God through the work of Jesus Christ in your life. Be made alive once again. Be empowered for life, for witness, for seeing the kingdom come. I read a couple of weeks ago in preparation for the sermon that the um, the both the love of the king for his subjects and the power of the king are shown in the gifts that he gives to his subjects. What is the gift that God has given? to us and that he offers to us, not only being made right with God, being forgiven of all of our trespasses and the evil we've done against him, but also he gives us his very self, his own son, and then his spirit poured out into our hearts. This shows us how much he loves us, it connects us to him, and it also shows his, his power, that he gives us his very self um, and connects heaven and earth once again through the work of Jesus Christ. So I just want to encourage us to not just let our gospel be, receive forgiveness. Jesus loves you. Um, I, here, here, I have it here. Um, Jesus loves you. He died for you. Do you want to trust him? That's not what Peter says, right? He shows our great guilt. He shows the way that God uses it to save us, and he calls us to repentance and to forgiveness, and then to receive the Holy Spirit. Do you see? So I want to encourage us in that regard, to to learn from Peter. We're gonna see the gospel preached and manifested all throughout the book of Acts. So this won't be the last time. But that really struck me and I wanted wanted to share it. Um, Okay, and then lastly, just before the final point, in verse 36, um, Peter again challenges, I think, the way that I share the gospel. He doesn't say, hey, if it's good for you, you should come. If it's not good for you, cool, believe what you wanna believe. Like, I don't wanna offend you, I just want to say, Jesus loves you. He doesn't say that, right? We already see the way that he presents the gospel, but then he says, know for certain. Uh, um, he says, let all Israel, in verse 36, know for certain that this Jesus whom you crucified is risen, and he's beckoning you to come to him. Um, these are things that Peter is proclaiming with boldness, and we need to ask the Holy Spirit for that boldness and, and be, be convinced that this is, this happened it is the only way to salvation, and it's, it's something that is the most loving thing we can do to hold out to people in our, in our words and actions. So, um, just closing down with point four, a very short point Jesus, the fulfillment of our deepest longings. Um, Albert Camus, the French existentialist, who um, there's good evidence that he was an atheist, but there's good, good evidence that at the end of his life, life he had he actually been speaking with a, a priest and that he might have actually cast his. His, um, his hope on, on Christ at the end of his life. But he was an atheist for most or all of his life. And he argued that our hearts long for love without parting. Our hearts long for love without parting, don't they? Like it's all, there's, always a bitter, there's always a bitterness when someone says goodbye, when a good thing has to end. And there's something in us that there's a dissonance that knows that good things shouldn't end. They shouldn't have to end. Um, so Albert Camus argued that our hearts long for love without parting but a universe without God, which he believed in, gives us only quote the conscious certainty of death without hope. And what Peter is saying is that's just absolutely not true. That's absolutely not true. Um, one of the things that um that argues for the fact that that is not true is that we have this we have this thing in us that shows that speaks to us that whispers and sometimes shouts like um, this longing for a love without parting. We're made for that because that's the way it was and is supposed to be, and that's the bone that Jesus has come to set right. He's come to bring us back to the Father. Jesus achieved and indeed is not only our salvation, but our satisfaction. Um, Verse 28, where Peter quotes from Psalm 16, he, he says this explicitly, you've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. There's a deep satisfaction that that's this speaking about Jesus here, but in Jesus that we are brought into. We are brought into a deep and abiding gladness and satisfaction in being face to face with our maker and the lover of our souls, God, through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And we run around, our idols are simply us running around trying to find that in any other way but but relationship with God. But it's only only found in Christ. Um, We long to be cherished, loved, and made lovely Um, and if we look at the lengths that God went to to save us by giving us his own son and being pleased to crush him for us, we can know, not only know cognitively, this is how much the Father must love me and want me to come to him, but also when we have the Spirit inside of us, we feel, we deeply feel the affection of the Father and as we're drawn back into relationship with the lover of our souls. Um, So this is what Peter is preaching, is that the Bible is a love story Um, and our hearts, uh, this is the message our hearts long to hear because we were made for him and nothing else is going to satisfy that. Um, there's so much else to say, but, um, I'm not going to say it. Let me go ahead and close with a prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you. Uh, it's so rich, Lord. It's true. It is Jesus. Jesus is your word to us. Every promise from you, Father, to us is yes and amen in Jesus. He is the one who became the sin sacrifice and brings us into your presence. He is, our, he is our righteousness. He is reigning now, and he has poured out his spirit. And so we pray now, Father, that you would pour out your spirit through the reign of Jesus Christ onto us and into us, that you would make us to live, that you would revive Sleepy Christians, as we wander and as we stray and as we fall asleep, that you would save those who are lost. That you would give us eyes and hearts to believe on Jesus Christ. That He is the way of approach, the only safe and full way of approach to You. So, thank You for Jesus. Thank You for Your Spirit, Father. Thank You for loving us and expressing that through Your Son. Um, Make us proclaimers of the gospel. Um, Those who are, as the as the bush in the desert in Exodus three, that that Moses saw, it was. Um, on fire, but not being consumed; those who are filled with the fire of your presence, but not consumed, because Jesus was consumed in our place. Lord, um, make us make us those kind of people, Lord, who are filled with your presence and proclaiming um, your good your good news of Jesus to a, to a lost and weary world. We love you. We bless you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.